0: is a part of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. It was in the King James Version. It was in, other, in a number of other translations. But as archaeologists discovered older copies of manuscripts, they realized that that portion of the Lord's Prayer was added later by a scribe. There's nothing theologically unsound about that portion of Scripture. In my mind, it completes this, the Lord's Prayer, probably because that's the way I was brought up in reciting it. But I just bring that to you as a point of academia, as a a, a point of knowledge. That's why it's included in some and in a lot of the more modern translations, it's not. So answer that question this morning. And again, it is a beautiful part of what we know as the Lord's Prayer. The Bible teaches a lot about the importance and the power of prayer. Prayer is effective. It does make a difference in the world the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working as James tells us. Abraham's servant prayed and Rebekah appeared. Jacob wrestled and prayed and Esau's mind was turned from 20 years of revenge. Hannah prayed and Samuel was born. Elijah prayed and there were three years of drought. He prayed again and rain came. Those are a few examples of prayer just from the Old Testament itself. I'm sure that each of you have some examples of answered prayer, many examples of answered prayer for your own lives. Last week, as I said, we talked about the purpose of prayer itself. The purpose, beyond all other purposes, is to glorify Christ, to glorify God, to glorify Himself. The purpose in praying must first of all be for the sake of glorifying God. Not ourselves, not to lift ourselves up, not to glorify ourselves. Prayer is above all an opportunity for God to display his goodness and his glory. Jesus affirmed the purpose of prayer when he said in John chapter 14, verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in Himself. True prayer, just like true worship, centers on God's glory and God's glory alone, not on man's needs. It's not simply our opportunity to lay claim on God's promises, much less make demands of Him, but it is to acknowledge His sovereignty. His power, to see the display of his glory, and to obey his will. In this short prayer in Matthew, God gives us a beautiful example of what true prayer should look like. This prayer can be divided into two sections. The first section deals with God's glory directly, and the second with man's our need. Each section, as you look at it, is composed of three different petitions. Those combined are the six items you see in your outline this morning. We want to briefly look at those this morning. As I studied this, I thought each of these six points, just like we went through the Beatitudes, could have been a sermon in themselves. But in order to get through Matthew before my twins have their license, I figured we better not try that this morning. By the way, a humbling thought. When they get their license, I'll be 60. I'll have all the gray hair I need by then, maybe. But yes, as we look at this prayer this morning, we want to look at these six points and how they go back to the primary purpose of prayer, how Christ's example shows us that prayer is to glorify him. Prayer is to be a way of life for us. It's an open and constant communion with God the God who created us, the God who loves us unconditionally. And because it is supposed to be a way of life, we need to understand how to pray. We need to understand and study the example Christ has set for us. And that's why Jesus gave his followers this example prayer. Now, is God mandating that we repeat this exact prayer? This is another question that is asked about the Lord's Prayer. Personally, I don't think so. I don't think it's a mandate by any means. A few reasons for that. First, in this text, it's introduced with the words, pray then like this. Again, alluding to an example, a guideline, not a mandate of word for word. And in the account of this prayer in Luke chapter 11, the disciples didn't ask Jesus to teach them a prayer. He, they ask him to teach them to pray. The second is Jesus in Matthew chapter 6 had just warned his disciples not to, pray, not to pray with meaningless repetition. And finally, nowhere in the New Testament do we find an instance of this or any prayer being recited just for the side of repetition. Now, is reciting it regularly wrong? Maybe you may do that every day as your prayers. No, it's not. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's not a mandate. It's not a legalistic mandate. And I ask you, why do you do it? Is it flowing out of a heart of a desire to glorify God? Or does it, are you taking on as a legalistic yoke? I encourage you to ask yourself that question as you study it. Now... As we look at the prayer, we're going to look at these six points and what they point to, who they point to, and why they point to it. The first is God's name. This word hallowed, hallowed be your name, is an old English word, and it's even in this modern contemporary translation they use it because it makes the point. It's translated from a Greek word which means to make holy, holy. Some other words translated from the same root word that is hallowed are holy, saint, sanctified, and sanctification. Those are all words that are English words that are translated from the same root Greek word here. In 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 16 Since it is written you shall be holy for I am holy. God isn't commanded to be holy. God is holy. We are commanded to be holy because we're not holy. It's a process. It's a a process of sanctification. And that is the meaning of praying, hallowed be your name. To attribute to God the holiness that is already His. He is holy. He is pure. He is perfect. And that truth, that statement of the fact that he is holy has always been his. He's always been holy. So to hallow God's name is to adore him, as we sang this morning. It's to honor him, to glorify him, and obey him as perfect. Hallowing God's name, like every other display of righteousness that is available to us, begins in our hearts. It's not out of some intellect or physical ability. It flows out of a heart that is turned to God. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That glory, that glorification of God comes out of a heart that is turned to God, that is focused on God. When we sanctify Christ in our hearts, we will also sanctify him in our lives. It will flow out of a sanctified heart. We hallow his name when we acknowledge that he exists. We also hallow God's name by knowing who he is. By studying the scriptures that he's giving us, given us, by understanding and learning his very nature, we hallow him in, in, in diligent study and understanding of who he is. We also hallow him by bringing him into every element of our lives. Not just coming and trying to meet him here on Sunday mornings and then leaving him at the church, but taking him to work with us, taking him to school with us, taking Him to whatever social group we're a part of with us. We hallow Him also in doing that. The Father's name is most hallowed when we behave according to His will. When we... Last week I talked about acting, but when we act like Christians, when we are Christians, when we are being Christians, when people perceive us as Christians... But only when that perception comes from a heart that is sanctified, that is set apart, and that is dedicated to the finished work of Jesus Christ. For Christians to live in disobedience to God is to, take, is to take his name in vain. How can we claim that someone is Lord of our lives who we don't follow as Lord? How can we say God is our Lord and then step out and do something that is totally contrary to his very nature and will? That is profaning God's name. Finally, to hallow God's name is to attract others to him by our walk, by our example. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Next point of the six is God's kingdom. To pray your kingdom come is to pray for God's master plan to be fulfilled here on earth. His kingdom is perfect in heaven. Christ stepped out of that perfect kingdom, came down to earth to dwell in this earthly kingdom, to overcome sin, to carry us into the cross, to die with our sins, and to be resurrected in victory over sin and death. To make it possible for us to attain that heavenly kingdom, God's heavenly kingdom, though, is to come to earth eventually. For Christ to come and reign as kings, to come and reign as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, His master plan—the master plan of bringing His kingdom to earth—should be the center of our lives and of our prayers. It should be what we were seeking with every inch of our being. We should not be complacent with things that are contrary to the very nature of God. To treat another human being as anything less than equal to us is contrary to the nature of God. To permit sin, to call things good, that God calls things sin, that God calls things evil is contrary to the nature of God. And we should not be complacent to that. We should not allow that. We should call sin, sin. And we should seek diligently the things of God to be manifested, to be made real in this world. But oh, how self-centered our prayers usually are, aren't they? We're human. We're natural. Our prayers are often focused on our needs. More often, our wants. Our plans our desires, our scope of understanding. We seem to think we know it all, but we know so little of the bigger picture. You see, we're often like tiny infants, aren't we? Who know no world, but the world of their own needs and wants. This week, the twins woke up and I went into the room to get one of them. Can't remember now which one it was. But... He was crying, so I went in to get him. As soon as I opened the door, he stopped crying. He relaxed. I took him out, and I sat down on the bed and waited for Amanda to get ready to feed him, and he was perfectly content. I got up to give him to her, and I walked over toward the couch and reached, out, reached him out to Amanda, but realized there were things in the way I couldn't get close enough. Amanda said, you need to go around the other side of the couch, so I pulled him back to walk around the other side of the couch. That was not what he had planned. He had been calm to that point, but he tensed his little body up and started swinging his arms and legs and crying and screaming. It was like, I was that close to mom and you pulled me back. I was that close to breakfast and you pulled me back. And I had to think, how tightly do we hold? How, how focused are we? You know, the bigger picture was it wasn't safe for me to take him any further. The safer route was to pull him back and to go around. Yet he was focused on the one thing he wanted. The one thing that he thought he needed. And how often do we act like that in our prayers? We have this one thing in mind, and when that doesn't happen exactly the way we think it should, then we believe God failed us. When, all, when always, when we step back and look at his bigger plan, he knows best. He has our best in mind. One of the greatest struggles of the Christian life is selfishness. That selfishness was manifested in that little baby this week. That selfishness is manifested in me more often than it should be. That selfishness is manifested in each of us in our daily walks. I, I understand that. I know that. We're not condemned because of that. We tend not to look at the big picture, God's picture. And that picture is the spreading of God's kingdom. And that kingdom principle pours over into the next point God's will. God gives us an example of praying for his will in this prayer. Prayer is not getting God to try to agree with us. It's not the purpose. Not to get him to provide for our selfish desires. Prayer is affirming, again, God's sovereignty, his righteousness, and his majesty, and seeking to conform our desires and our purposes to his will not ours, not demanding our way. It is, he, the prayer states, your will be done. Now this discussion on God's will can quickly be turn into a discussion of, well, how do you discern God's will? That's not Jesus' point in this prayer. His point in this prayer is we should be seeking God's will and not our own will. That is the point of the discussion of will in this prayer. And that's the focus of this prayer is seeking God in everything, seeking his will and setting our will aside. It is our responsibility to pray for our families, our pastors, our missionaries, our national and other leaders and for, any, or and for many other people and other things in this world that we live in. But our prayers in every situation should be that God's will be done in and through the people who He has put in these places. That they would think, speak, and act in accordance with God's will. Not our will. Not what we think they should do, but what God has planned for them to do. The best that we can pray for any person or any cause is that God's kingdom be advanced in and through that person or that cause. The greatest hindrance to prayer is not a lack of technique or a lack of biblical knowledge, the right words to say, or even a lack of enthusiasm, but it's a lack of faith. We simply do not pray with the expectation that our prayers will make a difference as we talked about earlier. Prayers are effective. Seeking God's will is effective. Praying for God's will will bring his kingdom principles to this earth. In fact, after a thousand years, as Revelation tells us, his earthly kingdom will blend into his heavenly kingdom. His heavenly kingdom will blend into his earthly kingdom and it will overcome and there will be no distinction. God's kingdom in heaven will be here on earth. And between his rule on earth, And his rule in heaven. When we pray as Jesus teaches. We will continually pray that our lives will honor and glorify our father in heaven. That's the first three of the six. The next three we're going to go through just a little bit quicker. And the next three are focused on us. Specifically on us depending on God and not depending on ourselves or, in specific instances, demanding our own way. The first is our physical needs in the present time. The next is our mental and emotional life in the past, a result of our actions and decisions. And finally, our spiritual life in the future, looking at our daily bread. The truth is, here in America... Typically, we have all the food we want, for the most part. There are those who wonder where the next meal is coming from. I understand that, and that is a difficulty. But for the most part in the United States, we have an abundance of food. But it's more than food that that Christ is talking about here when he says our daily bread. He's talking about, in general, all of our physical needs. It's not only a petition, though. It's not only an example of a petition for God to give us our daily bread. It's a recognition of the provision that he has made and that we know that he will continue to make. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. Our debts are basically sin. When we sin, we rack up debt. The debt that is acquired from our sins, this this analogy of a debt, these debts that are racked up from our sin will keep us from heaven. But for the finished work of Jesus Christ, that debt condemns us. It dooms us to eternity separate from God because God is holy That debt can only be paid by God. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This statement in Christ's example prayer in Matthew is a restatement of that promise. There is no condemnation. Why? Because Christ took the condemnation and rose in victory over that that death and condemnation. But it is also an acknowledgement to the call to confession. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. We are to forgive because it is the character of righteousness to forgive. God is righteous. He is forgiving because of his pure righteousness. Righteousness. Next week, we're going to look a lot closer at forgiveness. Why? Because Christ mentions it again in verses 14 and 15 of this chapter. So we're going to look at it more in depth next, year, next week. Our final point is our deliverance. James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one praying in this manner as Christ gives example in this lord's prayer lord we're basically saying lord don't ever lead us into a trial that will present such a temptation that we will not be able to resist it it's laying claim to the promise in 1 corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to men god is faithful And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with a temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That's what Christ is reminding us of in, in the last statement of this prayer. God will carry us through whatever temptations, whatever trials we face. And only God will carry us through that. We cannot do it under our own power, our own intellect, our own strength. It's God that does it. So what is Jesus' prayer teaching us, this example? It's fleshing out the purpose of prayer. It's reminding us that our prayers should be focused on the fact and illustrating the fact that we believe it in our hearts that God is holy. God's kingdom is the only kingdom that will stand. God's will is true. God is the answer to our needs. We are forgiven by God's grace, and we overcome temptation by God's grace. Our prayers are effective. Our prayers are powerful when we acknowledge the focus is to be god not just with our words or our actions but by faith pouring out of our hearts you say kevin but i just don't know what to pray it still seems overwhelming i don't know all the right words what if i what if my attitude is wrong what if there is some selfishness coming out well god hasn't left us to ourselves He gave us this example, and he also gave us his Holy Spirit to help us. I want to remind you of Romans chapter 8, verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18. Praying at all times in the Spirit. I encourage you this morning don't believe Satan's lies. Your prayers are beautiful to the Creator God. They don't have to be eloquent words, they don't have to be perfect theology. Wait a minute, Kevin, that's almost heretical. Do your kids ask you questions perfectly? Do you make them have everything perfect before you answer their question? No, because you love them and you use those opportunities to teach them. God wants us to come to Him as we are. His Spirit will direct us. His Spirit will strengthen us. His Spirit will give us the words. He will teach us faithfully. And as we pray, I encourage you to listen to yourself. Don't record your prayers. It's not what I'm saying. But Listen to yourself. Listen to your heart. Ask yourself, where is that coming from? Is that an attitude of seeking to glorify God? To praise God with everything within you? Or is there some selfishness coming out? Ask God to purge you of that selfishness. Ask God to direct you, to teach you, to mature you in your faith. You have all the tools you need to pray a powerful, effective prayer. Look past Satan's lies and his discouragements and look to the hope that is available to us through the finished work of Jesus Christ. Remind yourself that God has sent his Holy Spirit to empower you, to teach you, to guide you. Don't neglect the gift that has given you of prayer and communion and fellowship with the God who created you. All He asks is that those prayers are focused at Him, for His glory, for His honor, in adoration of Him. Why? Because He's the only one worthy to be praised. He's the only one capable of giving you those good and perfect gifts. He's the only one who's pure, the only one who's holy, the only one who's perfectly just, the only one who's perfectly loving. And He loves you. He desires to bless you. He delights in your joy. He delights in fellowship with you. Do you have that same delight and fellowship with him? Are you buying into the lies and the deceptions of this world? I encourage you this morning, as you pray, don't overthink it. Talk to God just like you would the one that you love here on this earth. The person who you're comfortable here on this earth. And know that as you talk to God in that same manner, he's perfect. A person who you trust here is not perfect. They're going to fail you. God won't. He may pull you back from some things that you don't understand. But he has something greater in mind. I just encourage you to keep that in mind as you pray. As you commune. As you walk daily with the God who created you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. We praise you for the gift of prayer the gift to commune with you, to talk intimately with you. God, help us as we seek that communion with you. Help to expose the selfishness in our hearts, to purge us of that selfishness, to purge us of the thoughts, the demands that are self-centered. Fill us with requests of glorifying you, of furthering your kingdom, of resting in you and delighting in you, Father. Well, thank you for the gift of your Spirit that empowers us to do that, Lord. God, we praise you for your indescribable love for us. And we thank you for creating us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.